Door Creek, it is my privilege to introduce our speaker this weekend, Dr. Alex G., a good friend, a local pastor who served our community here for over 35 years. Alex will tell about the time he preached his first message here on the south side of Madison as a 15-year-old and saw that church grow out of his family's living room to the church that is today, Fountain of Life Covenant Church on the south side off the Beltline. He also heads up Nehemiah Center for Urban Leadership Development and has led a movement towards reconciliation in our city called Justified Anger. He's coming today with a message entitled, Calling All Cowards. And when I think of Pastor G, coward is the last word that I could think of to describe him. He's a man who is bold in his leadership, in his vision for what God can do in a community, in families' lives, in churches together. And it has been my distinct privilege these past 10 years to call Pastor G my friend. And so together as a church, let's give Pastor G a warm welcome right now. Well, hello everyone. That was a pretty cool introduction. It's really good to be here um, to celebrate with you. It's always a great opportunity to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when Pastor Mark started talking to me about some dates for coming and sharing with, um, with you all here at Door Creek, um, I became real excited. It's so easy to become so engulfed in the work that we do, you know, as pastors in our own churches, but it's really great to get out and cross-pollinate a little bit and be with the brothers and sisters around the community and just to be reminded that God's people that we're everywhere and that we're doing all kinds of things for him. And I think that that's really, really tremendous. I want to invite you just to bow your head so we can just pray for a moment for, for our time together tonight in the word. Lord, it's always a privilege to be able to talk to your people, to encourage sons and daughters in the work, in the faith, in the cause. Um, I know that my brothers and sisters here have been talking about owning their own spiritual growth, developing a greater heart for the city and for the broader community, and really working to be the, the hands and the feet of you, Jesus. I pray for your grace on us. I pray for a revelation of truth. Because although I have notes and things that I wanna talk about, you know what you want to say and you know what you want said. And so I just pray that your living waters would just flow here today, that you would unify our hearts, that you would give us a greater heart for your people and for your work and for all the things that you're about in our community. I'm grateful for this opportunity to stand with brothers and sisters. I'm grateful for your spirit that's on our lives. I'm grateful for the opportunity that you have given us. So. Help us as the people of God to continue to yield ourselves to you, to submit to you, to say yes to you, to obey you, and to be workers together with you. Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. You know, be, it's so, it, again, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's so rare that we get a chance as pastors to be with um, the congregations of our, of our colleagues. And so I wanna just take this moment 
just to let you know, I appreciate the ministry of Door Creek Church. And that's not a nicety. That's not something Mark has forced me to say. That's not in my contract for being here. But Mark has become a really good friend of mine. And it's very interesting because um, I didn't want to like him. And that's a whole other story. I'll tell you about that the next time. And it's just, it's just nothing about him. It's just that I have a long-standing history with you guys since you were Buckeye Church. So I go way back. Brad Smith was my soccer, my um, tennis friend. And so I made up my mind I wasn't going to like anyone who's going to come in and replace my friend. And so those of you who are new, you don't even know what I'm talking about. Old people know what I'm talking about. And... Um, and, and Mark just has a way of just staying consistent. I don't like baseball. He made me go to a Cubs game. Um, I got father issues. I don't talk about it. I took him to where my father lives in Chicago. So he has this way. And so uh, I know that you're part of this church. And he probably sucks you into all this stuff too. And so, um, but I really appreciate him because um, there's some gutsy things that are happening in our community. There's a great opportunity for the church to be the church. And I appreciate the fact that Pastor Mark comes alongside me because it's not always an easy thing to do. And um, I'm, I'm somewhat of a mild-mannered guy. I'm a, I'm a recovering class clown. Um, I like to be liked. Um, I like to be respected. But being a pastor and not being able to control my call and having somewhat of a prophetic voice and a prophetic edge, that prophetic voice, I find myself saying things, pressing things, challenging things that's not within my nature. And it's easy to look around and find no one standing with you. And I appreciate the fact that in obeying God, not necessarily understanding everything that I'm saying or doing and not even saying that he stands 100% with everything I say or do, but I appreciate the fact that he stands with me in my pursuit of God's call, and that's a true friend. And you probably should consider that as you're thinking of people who really um, hang with you. Um, are they your friends? Are they with you because they like what you're doing? Or do they like you even when they don't agree with what you're doing or don't fully understand? And so I really, really appreciate that. Um, I have this strange kind of message on my heart um, tonight. It's, it's, it's been brewing. And so um, thank you for letting me come here and, and practice it with you. Um, but I've been thinking about um, the weeks following Easter. You know, some traditions we refer to it as Easter season because we hit the resurrection and we just kind of lay low until we talk either about the ascension or Pentecost, uh, which, which is coming up in a few weeks. But I realize after years of being a pastor, that we always tend to think that there are people who are on fire. And then there are people who we're trying to get on fire for faith. So there are people that are saying, yes, let's do missions trips. Let's make sandwiches for the homeless. Let's give backpacks to the kids. Let's do, let's worship, let's sing. They're the first ones up when we say let's sing. They're the first ones extending their hands when, when the leaders of the service say let's greet each other. And so we know the folks that seem to be excited about their faith. And we know the people who are our friends who are seeking faith. They've had bad experiences and they're not quite ready to connect. But there's a group of people in between sort of the, the seekers and the folks who are just really um, on fire in their faith and really encouraging their faith. And many of the people in between come to church regularly. And some of us are here tonight. And we don't necessarily identify with the people who get it. And they're like, yes, amen, I'm there. And they know too much to be with the people who say, well, I don't know if this is real. If there's a God, he's got to prove it. There's so many other kind of religions, so many other kind of faith, you know, who's, who's tampered with the Bible. You know, wasn't Jesus just a good prophet? They know too much to be in that camp. But we're the people who sometimes 
because we've sensed a call of God on our heart, a tug from God on our heart. We've sensed that we're supposed to be people who pray for folks. We've sensed that perhaps we're supposed to be those who maybe take missions trips or teach Sunday school. We feel that there's something that we can and should be doing and we haven't done it. We feel as if sometimes our positions, our prestige, and I don't mean that you have to be rich or famous or an elected official to worry about this, but maybe you're just in a role and you're in a place, maybe we are, where we worry more about how we look and come across to people than how we serve Christ. And I found that after years of sitting with people in my office, ministering with people, talking to folks over coffee, that there are so many who just feel guilty and stuck because they feel that they have failed God and there's more that they can be doing and they feel stuck. Now, breathe, I'm not coming to beat up on those folks. Hopefully, I'm coming to offer a word that will find you and help you find deliverance because we need you in the game. We need you in the trenches. We need you on the front lines. We need you in the back rooms. We need you on your knees. We need you in your sharing. We need you. And so I just wanted to talk about that tonight. So I want to give a shout out to all the cowards out here who have gone back on their words, jeopardized their integrity, broken their promises, lost their temper, saved their faith, skirted the truth, neglected their prayer time, doubted God's word, disobeyed his commandments, faked their joy, abandoned their post when God needed us most. Because the cross of Jesus speaks to us as well. And so my prayer is that God would help us to do this. And I want to talk about two, two um, people in particular in John 19. I want to talk about Joseph of Arimathea. And I want to talk about Nicodemus. And I want to talk about how these individuals failed Christ at some point in their lives. But I want you to see the beauty of the story of Christ, how he not only comes for those who have followed him, but those who have strayed. I always like to look at the, the underlying points of a story. When I read the, the, the parables and I read the miracles, I don't want to just focus on um, what the punchline is. The person was raised from the dead. The person was instantly healed of leprosy. But who was the person? What was their expectation? What was the cost of Christ doing that? And what is his relationship with the outcast? Somehow we have we've had it drained into, ingrained into us, ingrained into us as believers that even in Christ, he wants the ones that are perky, who know scripture, who are bold with their faith. They're the first one to volunteer for things. And so many of us who are needed on the lines feel that somehow we have failed God. So I love that after the resurrection, Jesus didn't just come back and gather those who followed him and then looked at people who failed him and said, mm -hmm, now you want me. I'm glad he didn't go to Peter and say, oh, yeah. Oh, oh you want it now. I'm glad he didn't say, where's Judas? Oh, really? Good. Because if it were me and my friends and my crew, after I put my neck on the line, turn their backs on me. Remember earlier I talked about how loyalty means a lot to me and I appreciate Mark's friend. You do what you're supposed to do and your friends are gone. He goes on the road to, the, to Emmaus in Luke 24 and he finds Cleopas. He goes to the shores and he finds Peter. He goes to Thomas who says, listen, y'all can get out of my face. I'm not even trying to hear that. 
I saw him bleeding up there. Everybody's talking about it. And you're talking about, oh, we saw Jesus and he's walking through walls and you can still see the holes in his hands. Well, I'll tell you what, unless I put this finger in the hole in his hand and I put this hand in the hole in his side, y'all can take that Jesus rose someplace else. And those are the people he went to. So anyone who knows that you should be further, you should be stronger, you should grow more and you're not quite there, don't run. Don't fall away. Stand until he comes and finds you. Stand until he comes and reaches his hands to you because he's not finished with you. Just because Cleopas and the other disciple were finished with Jesus didn't mean he was finished with them. And things happen to us. We lose loved ones. We, we experience divorce. Our children experiment with drugs. They do things that we taught them not to do. And so somehow we get upset. We turn our backs. We run back. And we feel that Jesus has disappointed us. Then what do you do with that? How do you bring the church? What, what song is that? Yeah, give me a song that says, yeah, God, this sucks sometimes. And they're probably going to bleep this out that I even said that. So you know you can't sing that in a worship. But can I be honest? That's how it feels sometimes. When you've raised your kids in Sunday school, you've taken them to church and they're struggling with mental health issues. They're struggling with fear. They're struggling with doubt and trauma. The person you marry, you don't know. They don't know you. You just all this begins to happen. Where do you bring that? And I think that as Christians, some of us run and we hide and we say and we do things and we miss God. Others, because we like to be liked. We like to be liked. It's hard for us to give our faith to Christ. You know, when, when Pastor Mark introduced me, he said, I can't imagine Alex being cowardly. You know, I had a praying grandmother. My mother wasn't necessarily in the faith when I was a child. My sister and I helped to lead my mother back, back to the Lord. She, was, she really followed the Lord wholeheartedly as a young person. But one of the toughest things for me as a young believer, one of the toughest things is that I didn't want my friends to think that I was weird. I knew God was real. I knew the power of prayer. My grandmother shared with me her testimony of God healing her of tuberculosis when she was dying as a single mom in the 40s in, in southeast Missouri. You know, my mom is 76, and when she gets a physical, her body still shows that she has been exposed to the TB virus. And my grandmother really planted the church that I, that I now pastor. She outlived the doctors who diagnosed her. So I believe God was real. I started reading scripture as a child. I could quote it better than the adults in the church. And so when my pastor let me preach when I was 15 or 16, it's because there were no adults around who would do it. But I would do it in the living room on Fisher Street, but I didn't want my friends to know that I followed Christ. I didn't want my friends to know that I prayed. I didn't want my friends to know that I believed in Jesus. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be popular. And I didn't need Jesus on top of raging hormones and bad acne. <laughs> and I was rocking them both. So there are times where I would come and I'd feel the tug of his call in my heart, but I would, full the, I would feel the shove of my shame in my soul. And so I would pray boldly. Hey, mom, I'll lead prayer. Lord, bless this meal. But then I'd go to school and I'd drop my napkin on the ground and go, Jesus, what? okay, let's eat. <laughs> so I identify with people who know God is real, but they know that their reputations are real too. And some days we bow to Christ and some days we bow to popularity. And you know what? It doesn't go away because you leave junior high or middle school. 
Because at work, and particularly, can I just be honest? We live in Madison, and folks have a weird thing about Jesus in Madison. I'm not just saying he's cool everywhere, but I, Madison's an interesting place. And so to talk about faith and to talk about scripture and to talk about these things is really sometimes tricky. So we find ourselves being one person at work and another person at home. And that's what happens here in this passage. In John 19, it talks about the burial of Jesus, verses 38 to 42. Now later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier visited Jesus at night because he didn't want anybody to know he was following Jesus. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and about seven, which weighed about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was, a Jewish day, it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was, nearly, was, was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I love this story for a whole lot of reasons. <sighs> because it reminds us that even when we have failed Jesus, he allows us to still come back into the, into the game. I've often wondered that while Jesus was on the cross, where the people were who he had touched, that widow of Nain, whose son was raised from the dead, Jairus' daughter, who was about 12 years old, who was raised from the dead, the bleeding woman who had been suffering for 12 years. The Bible talks about the woman who was hunched over and Jesus healed her and the man with the withered hand. The people took from Jesus didn't really think about his fate. But then the people who were close to him, who had these one-on-one interactions with him also, Peter, Joseph, Nicodemus, And in the midst of all of this Easter time celebration, post-Easter celebration, what it means to walk in the resurrection power, there are people who feel like they have failed the Lord miserably. What do we know about Joseph? We know this, that he was a wealthy man, that he was righteous. In the book of Mark, when it said that he came and asked Pilate boldly for the body, but in John it said he served him secretly. Two words to describe someone. He was bold when he said, Pilate, I want that body. But while Christ was living, he was very timid and very shy and secretive. And so he struggled as a wealthy man and part of of the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling group in Jerusalem. And they ruled over over civic and religious matters. And he sat in that seat with 70 other folks and, and they made rules and powerful rules. But yet in that group with the people who hated Jesus, he was very quiet. He was very silent. But yet he said he was a secret disciple. But do you know what happens to secret disciples? When they saw Jesus bloodied on that cross, they wondered, would my testimony, could my words, could my witness have made a difference? And did he die? Because I didn't say anything and I didn't speak up. And the truth of the matter, if we tell the truth, many of us will toss and turn at night. Did I share a message with my aunt? Did I pray for my father? 
Did I show the love of Christ? Did I do these things that would be helpful to people? And we toss and turn and we wonder and question. We wonder about and we question the validity of our witness. He knew that he was savior. That's why he served him. Maybe he was trying to protect his wealth. Maybe he was trying to protect his reputation. Maybe he didn't want his connection with Christ to mess with his income. We don't know. All we know is scripture says he was rich, he was bold, and he served him secretly. But we know this. He never crawled out of the shadows until Christ had been crucified. How many times have we watered down what we believe, watered down who we believe in, because we're afraid of what other people will think and what they'll say to us or about us? And I'm asking these questions because I know that Pastor Mark is talking about what does it mean to own our own spiritual growth. And I think that part of what's going to help the people of God really grow is getting unstuck from places of fear and guilt. And Christ can do that because Christ does not use guilt or fear to motivate us. That's a tool of the enemy. He comes to draw us with love so that we can fully join him and rejoice in him. But sometimes we worship Christ secretly as well. Because worship is not what you do with your hands and it's not what songs you sing. Worship is how you live your life in response to Christ. It's how you treat people. It's how you speak to people. It's your consideration of the poor and the broken. It's, a, it's honoring people. It's loving people. It's seeing Christ's love and Christ's potential in people. That's what it really means to, to, be, to be a worshiper. It's not just what we do here for the first few minutes of service. It's not the warm-up for the preaching. Worship is a lifestyle. It's how we respond to God. But guilt and shame impedes our worship. And there's a part of us that really wants to follow Christ. We see the need. We see the brokenness. And we see how people are so void of answers and we know that we are serving the answer but yet opportunities go by because we miss them Nicodemus is the man who came to Jesus in John 3 it was the man to whom Jesus spoke and said for God so loved the world it was that that he gave his only begotten and he said this to Nicodemus this wasn't a great big sermon on the mount he said this to a guy who came to him at night because he was ashamed of what people thought about him he was calculating. He, he thought, I want to see what Jesus is saying. I want to see what he's about. So I'm going to go to him, but I'm going to go to him at night so that no one knows. Let's just be honest for a minute. How many of us, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of us, when we think about the, what it means to serve Christ, immediately think about what someone else is going to think. That if we really serve him, if we really honor him, we wonder, what's the repercussion? What does it mean? What will it cost us? And Nicodemus was like this. He was a prominent teacher. He was part of this ruling order as well. In fact, Jesus even chided him when he was telling him, you must be born again. He was like, well, what do you mean by this? And Jesus says, you're the prominent teacher of Israel and you don't even know what I'm talking about. He even chided him. He checked him. He rebuked him because he was supposed to be this teacher and understanding of this great word. But the name Nicodemus means conqueror of the people. Yet he didn't live up to his name because he allowed the people to conquer him. Here his name means that I can lead people. I can conquer people. I can manage people. I can supervise people. But he allowed the people to conquer him. He tried to speak up in John 7 when they were trying to, when they were trying to um, trap Jesus. And he said, well, is it our custom to really make such allegations without, without um, any proof. And they said, oh, are you his follower too? And it quickly shut Nicodemus up. 
They basically said, Nick, sit down somewhere and shut up. Because if you're trying to side with this heretic, then we're going to treat you like we treat him. And Nicodemus just sat right back into his little seat. How often have we been in places where we tried to stand for Jesus? We tried to speak up for Jesus. We tried to live what it means. And we're not sure how it clashes with culture. We're not sure how it clashes with society. And we sit down and we hold our peace. And that's what Nicodemus did. He kept holding it. He came to Jesus at night in John 3. He tries to speak up in John 7 by what he hears, but he sits down, but he didn't live, he didn't live up to his name. My name, Alexander, means defender of people. And although I'm getting better at it, there are days, there are times, there are seasons where it's my reputation I'm defending and not the people. There are times I spend more time and that's not what I said. That's not what I meant. That's not what I'm doing. That's not what I inferred. Rather than just saying, God, what are you giving me to say? What do you want me to do? And moving ahead with that. I'm supposed to lead people and not be led by people. It's so ironic that my name means leader, but my struggle in Christ is will I let popular opinion lead me? Or will I have the boldness in Christ to stand on what God has shown me and what his word says to me? I'm not asking you to do an etymological study on your name, but what does your name mean and are you living up to it? God calls you daughter, are you living up to it? He calls you son, are you living up to it? He calls you steward, are you living up to it? He calls us intercessors, are we living up to it? He calls us his family, are we living up to it? Do we love others in his family? Are we living up to what we do and who we are? These men, never consented to Jesus' death. They never said crucify him, but their silence allowed it to happen. But here's what's beautiful and what's powerful to me. They asked Pilate for his body. They take it down. They wrap it up. They put him in a tomb where no one had ever been laid before. And that might not seem like a whole lot. It might not seem like that means anything. Except Jesus was seen as a terrorist. He was an enemy of the state. He had to flee for it. Well, his father and mother had to call, let, had fled with him when he was a threat to the state, when he was just an infant. When these folks came and they took Jesus down, the cowards who had done nothing except hide, by coming and giving Jesus a proper burial, they enabled his, his grave to be marked, which meant the disciples would know where to come. Because what happened to many of the wicked people who were crucified the, the way Jesus was, who were made to be this, this, this example, that when they were crucified, they were often thrown into a heap in a city dump. And we have young people here, so I won't be graphic but it was a gruesome form of cremation that happened along with regular trash and rubbish of the city. Can you imagine trying to explain Christianity and going to the city dump and saying, this is where they laid him. So these men who did nothing, 
during their lives, but hide. These men who were cowards, these men who counted their money and wanted to sit in their prestigious seats and wanted to save their own images and their own little empires and their own little religious world, they wanted to save it. Yet, in a cowardly act, by coming out of the shadows and asking for Jesus' body, they prepared it and they gave it a burial. And the women, according to scripture, followed them there and prepared his body for the burial so that 2,000 years later we could testify to the fact. Scripture could say that they went to the place where he was buried. Why is this important? It seems like a small thing. It's because Jesus wanted even the cowards, the people who ignored him publicly for three years, the people who did not walk with him, were not counted with him, who missed all kinds of opportunity He wanted his death, his burial, and his resurrection to be a message to them as well. He wanted to reach out to them and say, I don't care how miserably you failed me, and I don't care how many times you've denied me, and I don't care how many times you should have spoken up and you didn't, and I don't care how many times you fell asleep during your quiet time. I don't care right now how many times you could have shared the faith and you didn't. I don't care how many times you've lost your temper, said things you shouldn't have said, thought things you shouldn't have done, You're a leader, you're a Christian, but there are things you struggle with, there are things you work with, and there are things that have you, there's a hole that they have on you, and you struggle with the shame because you want to be here, but your brokenness or your addiction has you here. And we come to church and we sit here and we ignore all this beautiful grace, and then we're the ones that are supposed to go tell the vilest of all creatures that Jesus saves, and those who claim his blood, who claim his life, who claim his name, who claim a relationship with him are stuck and fearful that the same God who we promise will save anyone can't thoroughly save us. Our task is to let people in prisons and folks who are strung out on drugs and the people we think are the outcasts of society to tell them Jesus saves and he loves us. But the truth of the matter is, probably a very small percentage of us are truly confident in the fact that he loves us. And if you are confident in it, it's probably tied to your ability or your giving or your history or what your mom did or your grandmother did or some task. I've been in this way, in this work, in ministry for over half my life. And the people I find who fully understand, who fully grasp how God sees them, how God loves them, that he's not counting up the wrongs you've done and the times you could have prayed and you didn't and the kind of times you could have witnessed and you didn't. We think he's, he's got this great big, this great big um, um, accounting system up in heaven and he's just counting you off. I knew you were going to mess up again. I knew you were no good. I was just waiting for you. I don't even know why I even called you out of what I did anyway. Look at you again. Another fine mess you created. And so we hide even in church from the grace of our God who wants you to know you are greater than your weakness, you are greater than your cowardice, you are greater than your failures, you are greater than your shortcomings, you are greater than your misgivings, and you are greater than your failure. And as these men did this last cowardly act, as they did this last cowardly act, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway, okay? (laughs) The women weren't cowardly, but the men were. (laughs) Thank you. I needed just one of those. I just need at least one. I am a black preacher. Talking back to me does help. 
Mark may not need it, but it helps a brother out. He said, here's where you meet me. And they did. Here's what I want you to do. They did. When they got his body, they went and followed along. But the men, they, they, the women were getting it. They were following. They were showing up. And they were the ones who went and told the men, he's risen. He's risen. He's risen. But those men and the prestige and, and the guilt, and they wanted it. For them to come to Pilate was still risking their reputation. Don't forget, it was still a risk. But it was a risk after he died. You know, if I got a friend and something goes down, not that I'm a violent person, I don't mean to talk about violence in church, but let me just say this for just a moment. If something really bad and ugly goes down and you're my friend, don't start praying. Roll up your sleeve, let's get this taken care of. And then we go ask God to help us out. But I don't want a prayer meeting when my life is at stake. You can come and visit me at the hospital and say, I know I should have did something. I should have called. I should have said something, but I was just calling on Jesus. It's like, all right, as soon as I get this cast off, I'm coming after you. <laughs> so it might seem small that they came a little bit late to visit, but it meant something. It was Jesus' way of letting them do something after all the failure. You know what this story says to me? Late love is better than no love at all for Jesus. That late love is better than no love at all. And so I want to pray for you for just a moment. I'm going to ask some of the musicians to come back up for just a minute before I begin praying. And if it's you, I'm not going to ask you to stand and come down the aisle or do any of this. But let me just be honest. The cowardice is up in here. I feel you're pregnant with the potential, the hunger, the thirst, the seal. Tor Creek, this is a beautiful campus. It's a beautiful facility. You let the police department come in and have meetings and do great things. But the beauty of this space is not your edifice. The beauty of this space is your heart, your talent, your faces, your heart. You, not this building. You are the city on a hill. You are who Jesus died for. You will draw people here and not your building. I'm not saying you're stuck in your building. That's, this is not what this is about. But, but I want you to hear my heart. Sometimes we get inside and we think so many other things will draw people. Our programs, this and technology, this is all great. Every time I come, I drool and think, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal that. But the beauty the power, the fervor in this place, what's on this hill that offers hope to this community around you, what's on this hill that draws hope to this city, that hope is you and your stories, your brokenness and your background and your history and the divorce you've lived through and the abuse you've survived and the criminal records you've overcome and the lies you've told and been caught for it, the unemployment you've experienced, the mental health struggles. That story and place where you think you failed God is becoming the strength of this place. I want you to emerge as a city on a hill. I want you to rise to the occasion. I don't want you to be tentative about it or ashamed. God has strategically placed you here to be salt, 
and to be light. But your shortcomings and your guilt and your failures are not sufficient to stop our God unless you let it. Unless you let it. So can we just bow our heads for just a moment? your presence was there the Holy Spirit had to be present to give those cowardly men the boldness to go and ask Pilate for your body something motivated them something said even though I failed him there's a moment the Jesus who healed lepers the Jesus who let lepers touch him the Jesus who touched babies the Jesus who let wicked people touch him Jesus who ate and drank with 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 criminals and with 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 tax collectors that Jesus will not reject us now and we've rejected him enough but tonight we stand today we stand in this moment at his at his at his cross we stand and something about your spirit and something about your grace Something about your grace allowed them to know that they could step in. Today, I ask you for that same boldness. I ask you that you would give someone strength in their hearts. That someone who would say, Lord, that's me. That's me, Lord. I'm guilty over this. I feel bad about that. I'm ashamed. I did this. I, 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 you know, I re-engaged in addictive behavior. Um, I was ashamed to tell my family about my commitment. Um, I don't talk about it at work. There are other Christians, but I don't connect with them because I don't want to be weird or nerdy. Whatever it may be, whatever holds you back, whatever keeps you in the shadows, I don't care what it is. It could be, it could be something you're struggling with. And it might not be shame because you haven't spoken up, but it could be things you're doing but I want to invite you out of the shadows to out in this place I want to invite you out of the shadows to come to his grace and I want you to know that the Jesus who died for those who are lost his blood extends to those who have been found but we still stumble in darkness oh come Jesus oh come Jesus Come in this place, Jesus. Magnificent Christ, risen Son of God, Lamb, Lamb, Lamb that was beaten and slain. The grace that you came to extend to this world. Would you please extend to this church? Would you please extend to God's people? Would you please let it come? 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 That grace is too sweet to pass by. And the sadness is you are not passing us by. For years we said, pass us not, O gentle Savior. But it's you we're passing by because we are convinced that you have rejected us. We are convinced that you are ashamed of us. We are convinced that you despise us. But if you allow the likes of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who in their prestigious, prestigious position could have said no to your crucifixion. They said nothing. They said nothing. They said nothing. And Jesus, there are times I said nothing. I said nothing. 
I heard people curse your name. I said nothing. I saw people without hope. I said nothing. I saw the opportunity to say, but Christ can fix it. I said nothing. But Jesus, sweet Jesus, sweet Jesus, come. Wipe the slate clean. Let us do a spiritual mulligan. Let us get back on course. Extend your grace. Touch our hearts. Refresh us, Jesus. Refresh us, Jesus. We're sorry. We are sorry for missed opportunities. But sorrow over missed opportunities will not blind us to future opportunities. We say yes. We say here. We say now. We say hallelujah. You've given us so much. We now give ourselves to you. Give us the strength to rise in new boldness and allow us to do with the rest of our lives what we were ashamed to do up till now. In the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.